Good morning, everybody. How are you this morning? I love seeing your beautiful faces up here. You know, I was, I was awake quite a bit last night. I don't know why I just couldn't sleep, but it's one of those good, good can't sleeps, you know what I'm saying? And I was just up kind of meditating on the Lord and what I was going to preach today. And I just kept getting this image that I'm seeing right now in my mind. And the Lord just kept saying to my heart, Clay, you got you to gotta know how much I love all those people out there. And he just kept speaking to that to me. And so I, th- I think obviously he wants me to know that. But I want you to know that this morning, just how much the Lord cares about you. And the fact that you're sitting there this morning is God's providential love and care for you because he wants you to hear his word. He wants you to draw closer to him. And he wants you to know how loved and how cared for that you are. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to preach this morning. We're beginning Advent. And Advent is just a, a nice little Christian saying of how we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in that Christmas season. We're entering into that. And I'm going to preach a few messages, probably about four, that will culminate on Sunday night, the 19th, when we have our big uh, Christmas program that we're preparing for. And I'm telling you, it's going to be good. So make plans to be there on the 19th Sunday night for that. But, but we'll finish this all up then. But this morning... I want to speak a message out of Matthew chapter 1 about Jesus' lineage, his unexpected family tree. And there's nothing more boring in the Bible than a lineage, I understand. But I think we can bring something beautiful out of it. And speaking of lineages, uh, I came from my mother, obviously, and it's her birthday today. So can we wish my mom a happy birthday right quick? Hey, birthday, mom, wherever you're at. She's listening. She'll like that, see you. Happy birthday, Mom. I can't tell you how old she is. Well, I could, but anyway. Another thing, we've got, uh, you know, past few years we've gotten some gifts for kids here in the community. We've got about 50 kids so far that we are getting some Christmas gifts for, and we've got a lot of people who have signed up for that. If for some reason uh, you don't have the Internet because you're, you know, disconnected or whatever, and you're not aware of that, uh, if you'd like to have a kid uh, that you could buy some gifts for, that we can get those gifts to them this Christmas, uh, sign, let me know, let somebody know at the welcome desk so that we can kind of tag you into that because we've got a few more kids that we need to get covered. And, uh, and that's a really good thing, and we're glad to be able to do that. So if you'd like to be involved in that, let us know, and we'll figure out how to get you involved in that. Amen. So we are going to preach beginning an Advent series here, and we're going to talk about an unexpected family tree. Now, how many of you, you, uh, you've gotten into Ancestry.com and stuff like that? Anybody done any of that? Like, I did that. I got in, and I found out pretty, some stuff that really isn't that interesting. Like, I figured out that I'm a European Englishman. Amen, right? Like, like, what? Duh. Uh, I mean, so I thought maybe we was going to find out, you know, something crazy. And when you, when you get in that, I, I think really what you're looking for is you're looking for like roots and context and what's my history. And if you're like me, you're thinking, you know what, if I, if I give them my DNA, all right, and they figure out my, my line, we're going to figure out probably that I come from some kind of royal lineage. And actually, they've been looking for my bloodline for years. And now there's a castle waiting on me with a billion dollars and a butler. Like when you put it in, you're expecting to find something amazing, some kind of hero that you're connected to, like you're of the line of Napoleon or something like, I don't know, like you, you, want, you want something, but then you're scared too because you think, man, you're going to find out that just like, you know, a couple centuries ago, maybe you, you were the great, 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 great grandson of a mass murderer, uh, you know, or something crazy. And so you get scared when you put that in and you don't know. And when you look at a lineage, when you look at your family line, you're going to find some normal history. 
you're going to find some real char- characters, aren't you? You're going to find some nut jobs. And, and, then, and then you're going to find some brokenness and some pain in your family line. And, and you're going to find some suffering. And then you're probably also going to find some successes. You're going to find that there were some people in your family line that, that it was pretty awesome. And, and, but most of us, we have all that jumbled up in our family, which leads to who we are in our current context. And, and it's really interesting because when you look at Jesus and you talk about Advent and you're looking at the first coming of Jesus, in both Luke and Matthew, they start by giving us Jesus' family line. And it's very interesting because Luke gives you this, it's the same family line, but how they list it is a little bit different. And I think Matthew's is very interesting for a very particular reason. Matthew lays out the lineage of Jesus slightly differently. And when we come to this first lineage in Matthew, we're looking at it and you're thinking, man, this is 16 verses with 41 names in it. I think I'll just skip down to verse 17. Amen. Like, don't y'all do that? But this lineage is so essential to understanding the Christmas story. And so when we look at it, we need to unpack it. We need to look at it. What is God trying to say in this? And you need to understand that Matthew is writing this. He writes the book of Matthew and over and over again he says, and this happened so that it could be fulfilled which was written and he was trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus was a matter of fact the fulfillment of every prophecy that was written in the Old Testament saying that a Messiah would come and would be born and would be the king of the universe. That he would be God in the flesh. That he would, he would come and take on the sins of the world. And so he's saying, look, he came and he fulfilled every one of these prophecies. He's trying to convince them. But the first way that he convinces them is through Jesus' genealogy. Because genealogies were used for legal rights, inheritance, and legitimacy. But here's what you need to understand about Matthew. Because he says some things in Jesus' genealogy that are a little bit sketchy. Like if you were writing out Jesus' genealogy, there's some things in there you would have said, we probably better not add that, y'all. Should we edit that out? Like if people know where he comes from, it's, it's, maybe they won't believe. But Matthew intentionally leaves the sketchy stuff in. And here's why I think he intentionally leaves the sketchy stuff in. Because if you look at Matthew's story and remember where he came from, Mark says it like this in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 of Mark, He says, Then he went out again by the sea, this is Jesus, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. Now, Levi is the same as Matthew. That was his surname. Levi is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Ain't nothing like going to the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So Levi is Matthew, and Matthew is a tax collector. And you got to understand that in that current time, if you were a tax collector, you were a middleman between the Jews and between the Roman Empire. You went around basically exploiting your own countrymen, imposing hard taxes and robbing money from them and taking money from them and exploiting them. And that you were a collaborator with the Roman Empire whom the Jews hated because they were, had them in bondage at that time. And so if you were a tax collector, basically you were kicked out of the synagogue. You couldn't come to church anymore. Your family cuts you off and said, no, you ain't with us no more. You've already demonstrated that you love money way more than you love your family and you love money way more than you love God. So don't come anywhere near us. We're done with you. Couldn't go to church, was cut off by your family. Matter of fact, if you were a tax collector, you could not be a witness in a court of law at that time among the Jews because you were despised, you were rejected because, because you had basically turned on your people and said, boy, I'm going to work for the Roman Empire and they were protected. So he's in this position 
He's lost his faith, his family, his ethnicity, and his background, essentially. But in verse 15, it says that it happened after he calls Levi that he was dining in Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. So Matthew's sitting down. Jesus comes into his house. There's more tax collectors that show up. There's sinners that show up. They're eating, and he's like, man, this is crazy because this man who should be rejecting me is sitting down at my table to eat with me. This is strange. Why is he doing this? And then it says in verse 16, And when the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people, saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And what we find out is because of this, it's life transforming for Matthew. He lays down his tax collecting game. He begins to follow Jesus. Jesus transforms his life. And now he's writing a book trying to demonstrate to his fellow countrymen whom he betrayed that not only did Jesus save him, but he is the God of second chances. And he saves us even when we have done the absolute wrongest thing that we could possibly do. Even when we betray our own people, Jesus comes and offers us a second chance. And see, this is why he begins to lay out the lineage in a very detailed and specific way. And in Matthew 1.1, here's how it starts. It starts all normal in the beginning. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there's a lot of packed stuff in here. He's starting out of the gate that if you are a Jewish person, your ears are saying, okay, okay, well, let's hear this because we know the prophecies and we know where Jesus comes from. So let's see if it lines up with what over 300 prophecies prophecies say about the coming of Jesus. And so the first thing that he says is this is the genealogy. He says this is the genesis if you read in the Greek language. So he's pointing him back all the way to the very beginning that not only is this Jesus's family line but Jesus is the genesis. He is the beginning. He is not just the omega. He is the alpha. Through him all things were created. And he's beginning to use a very specific word to say he is the origin. And he says his name is Jesus the Messiah. And the reason he says his name is Jesus the Messiah is because Jesus was like, like you know, in our, in, our, in our church right now, we got like 12 Bryans and 13 Ashleys. You know what I'm talking about? And so, and so you, it's a, it's a, we got their common names and you get them mixed up in That year Jesus was born, most likely Jesus was like a name like Brian or Ashley. There were a lot of Jesuses because it was the Old Testament equivalent of the name Joshua. Yahashua is how you say it in Hebrew. Okay, And so so there were many Jesuses running around. But what was different about this one Jesus? This one Jesus was not just any random Jesus down the street. This Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's saying that, yes, he is Jesus, which means in Hebrew, God, Yahweh, is salvation. It's a great name. And see, through, through, through his son, God says, I'm going to save the world and I'm going to bring salvation to the world through this man right here who is also God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. 
He's the one who has fulfilled all the law and all the prophets, everything that has been written from Genesis to Malachi, promising that there was going to be a Savior that entered into the world. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. But he's not just that. He says he's the son of David. And David was the greatest king in Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He, 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 he wrote most of the Psalms. And there's something going on that's different because there was a prophecy in 2 Samuel verse chapter 7, verse 11 through 13. Notice this. When David became king, the Lord said, the Lord declares to you through Samuel the prophet that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now he's talking about Solomon right there. Because Solomon was his son and his kingdom was established for a moment, but Solomon died. And here's what he says. He is the one who will build a house for my name, but notice what he adds on to it. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, he's tying in that through, yes, you're going to have a son named Solomon. He's going to be king in your stead. But ultimately, through your family line, there is going to become a king who will never die and his throne will be established forever. He's prophesying the coming of Jesus, the son of God the king of the universe, and this is why they knew that this Messiah would come from the line of David. So Jesus is the Genesis, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus is the son of Abraham. And if you remember, he says he's the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of all Jews. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who became Israel. And God said to Abraham in the very beginning, he said that in your family tree, Abraham, look, he called Abraham out. Abraham was over here worshiping idols. He said, Abraham, I want you to leave all that stuff. Leave your family. Follow me. I'm going to take you to a place. I'm going to make you a great nation. And he says, through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's crazy to think about. Not just Jewish people will be blessed. The entire world will be blessed through your family line. And I love what he says here because I've been meditating on this. I was talking to, as a matter of fact, Anthony about this last night, that sometimes when God gives us promises, it feels like when he gives us the promise, it should happen next week. But God gives us promises. I'm telling you, God has given me promises that will probably manifest in my grandchildren. And I've got to be willing to wait. That's part of what Advent is. I'm willing to wait on what God does through my line. And the promises He's given me, if they don't show up next week or next year, I'm not giving up on God because He shows throughout Scripture that He's always faithful and His timing is different than your timing, but His timing is better than your timing. He's doing something far beyond you can understand. And he says this to David. He says this to Abraham. And he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He said it would start with the Jews, but this thing is going to expand through the whole world. But then he goes on. Matthew 1, 2. You following me so far? Matthew 1, 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now, Jacob, who became Israel, had how many sons? He had 12 sons. So why does he list specifically Judah when he had 12 names to choose from? He lists Judah very specifically. And here's what I want you to understand about something right here. When Jesus shows up, they're waiting and they're longing because they have already heard over 300 prophecies over the course of millennia waiting on him to show up. Thousands of years 
promise after promise, waiting on him to show up. And there was a mathematician who actually did the study, and there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus' coming. And they said that even if, if he just fulfilled eight of the 300, eight of the 300, he said it would be the same amount as one in 10 to the 17th power or one in whatever number that is. You see that? So it's basically, and it is impossible, y'all. There's only one person that could ever fulfill all these prophecies. And if you don't fulfill all of these prophecies, you're not the Messiah. You're a fake. But there's a prophecy that came in Micah in chapter 5, verse 2. It said, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. So it says not only is he going to come from the tribe of Judah specifically and be born of the lineage of Judah, but he's going to come from a very small town in Judah called Bethlehem Ephrata, which is where by random chance it, it seems because there ain't no room for, the, for them in the inn and they're sent back to get taxed and, and Joseph and Mary shows up in that place and she's like, boys, my water broke. We ain't got no other choice. We ain't getting back to Nazareth. We got to have this baby here to fulfill that which was written and I'm gonna tell you something I bet you a dollar Mary wasn't too happy about that prophecy being fulfilled she wanted to be in her bed in Nazareth you know what I'm talking about she she wasn't happy about that prophecy being filled because it meant discomfort for her sometimes God's word being fulfilled in your life will not make you comfortable and so she comes into this place and and, and we, we find that he fulfills that promise. And so when God identifies himself to Moses, he said, I am, the God of I, I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. And then you see Judah. And so right now it's getting established. And if you're a Jewish listener, you're like, okay, man, maybe this dude, like maybe he's really the guy. Uh, let's go on a little bit further. But here's what gets crazy, because if you're listening to the lineage at this time and you're a Jewish person, you start to say, oh, like you start to get blush. You start to get embarrassed because he starts to list scandal after scandal after scandal. And in Matthew chapter one, verse three through six, notice what it says. He says, now Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And notice he doesn't have to put this in lineage. Most lineages back in those days, they didn't put the women in there. But he says specifically, he was the father of Perez, whose mother was Tamar. So Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. And we're having a lot of kids take note of these names. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. I mean, is it Salmon or Salmon? Let's, do, let's go ahead and get into that debate right now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Salmon. Somebody corrected me one time because I said, oh, I'd like to have a piece of salmon. They said, no, it's salmon. I said, well, I'm from Clay County. <laughs> we don't say words correctly here. So salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Didn't have to list that, but he did. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Didn't have to list that, but he did. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, and then he makes it even a little bit more sketchy, Uriah's wife. And you're thinking, why would he list this stuff in here? Because you got to understand, during this time 2,000 years ago, now I looked this up because I remember somebody saying it one time, and it is a historically accurate fact, I believe, as far as what I could read. But Jewish men would wake up in the morning and say this prayer right here. Put it up there if you would, that next slide. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. Thank you that you have not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. 
I mean, that right there is scandalous as it is, especially in our culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, and to wake up and say that in the morning, blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who's not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Hallelujah. I mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you say that, and, you're, and they're thankful about it. And so they see these people as less than. If you're not a Jew, you're less than. If you're a woman, you're less than. And all of these things. Now, women, thank God Jesus came. He set things right, okay? But, but, but here's the thing. You need to understand that he's saying this for a very specific reason. And the first woman that he lists in the lineage is a woman named Tamar. And this is one of the sketchiest stories in all of Scripture, and it's just really good. Some of y'all, you say, man, the, bo- the Bible is just boring. Have you ever read it? I remember when I was a kid, we used to watch Jerry Springer. I mean, that's what the Bible is like. I'm serious, man. If you actually read it and study it, I mean, you're not looking at a bunch of holy people all the way through it. You're looking at people who deal with the issues of life the same way we deal with the issues of life. And this first woman named Tamar, you got to understand this. Judah is born. He grows up. and, 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 And Judah is supposed, right, he's got three sons, one named Er, one named Onan, one named Shelah. And Er is married to Tamar, but Er is a wicked man, and the Bible says he dies, doesn't have any children. The law of Deuteronomy says that his brother Onan is to raise up a lineage to his brother, but he refuses. He says, no, I don't want nothing with Tamar. And so she's over here weeping, and Judah says, all right, I'll give you my third son, Shelah, but he's young. Let him grow up first, and then he'll raise up a lineage uh, to, to your husband who has passed away. But when he comes of age... Judah doesn't give her Shelah either, and so she is barren and has no children. Now get this, and, and, and she gets desperate for children and for a line. You know what she does? She puts a veil on her face, poses as a prostitute, and sleeps with a man, and takes his staff, his signet ring, and his cord just to, just to hold him in bondage, so to speak. And three months later, after she's pregnant, Judah hears that she has bec- played the harlot, gotten pregnant, is three months pregnant, and he says, you know what? This woman, we need to take her out and burn her hind end, put her to death. And she says, okay, let's do that, but let's first find out whose child it is. Here's his staff, here's his signet ring, here's his cord, and it was Judas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, that's that's Mari. You know, like a DNA test. (laughs) There's serious stuff going on. And we've only read about four lines into the lineage, y'all. I mean, the Bible's good. And so this happens, and he says, oh, well, never mind. They have a child. His name is Perez. Amen. So up to this point, if you're just reading the lineage, here's what you basically got, okay? Abraham has a son named Isaac. He almost kills his son Isaac, but an angel stops him from killing him and murdering him. Isaac then has a son named Jacob who is a deceiver who ends up in the line of Jesus by deceiving his own blind father. And then he goes and is going to try to get married to this one woman, but his father-in-law deceives him. And so he ends up sleeping with the wrong woman, having Judah through the wrong woman that he slept with, and then Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law thinking she's a prostitute and has Perez, and this is where we're at so far in the line of Jesus. I mean, it's wild, y'all. And I mean, you know, this is why I said I, I was excited about this message, amen. And so then you come, and right after they have 
Perez, you come a little bit further down the line, about seven generations after Tamar, and they list this other woman, Rahab. And Rahab's not a Jew either. She's a Canaanite who was an enemy of the Jews where they were supposed to go into the promised land and they were supposed to take over Canaan. And she's living in the walls of Jericho. And as they come uh, to the promised land, they're looking in and they see the walls of Jericho. And Joshua sends two spies in. One of the guys that she sends in, guess who it is? Salmon. Right? One of the guys that Joshua sends in is, is, is Salmon. Or is it Salmon? One or the other, Right? Somebody tell me after church. It's kind of like how people say sword, sword. Anyway, I'm, I, I, stay, stay focused, Clay. Help me. Chasing squirrels. So Rahab is living in the walls of Jericho. And it says in Joshua 2.1, Then Joshua the son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim. He said, go look over the land. He said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house, notice this, of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So this is not just a woman posing as a prostitute. This is a woman who is a prostitute. And I'm not saying this to be scandalous or sketchy or a little bit messed up, but Rahab's name literally means wide open and proud. And it meant essentially that she was probably the madam of the house of prostitutes. That she wasn't just a prostitute, she was running a sex trafficking industry in the wall of Jericho for men that would pass through town. Amen. This is who she is. It's in Scripture. And so we find this out. And so they go in. And in Joshua 2.9, they have a very uh, peculiar conversation when they come in and they stay with this prostitute. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, in verse 9, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She said, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And she said this, Give me a sure sign, notice that word, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now, Jericho was one of the most wicked cities in ancient times. They practiced bestiality, various forms of perversion. Matter of fact, they had ended up leaning to the public burning of their children to Molech. And they killed thousands of children at the altar of Molech, burning them, setting them alive on fire. And so when God comes in, these like people are like, you know, I can't believe God would go in and send them in there. These people were wicked, folks. They were doing some stuff, and, and God was bringing judgment on them specifically for that. But she's living in the walls, and she says, show kindness to me. When we're talking about a woman that was a prostitute living in the walls of the most wicked city, and she says, look, she ends up becoming a woman of, of what is considered a hero of faith because she knows what's coming. And see, Rahab is really a picture of us, that we are living in our sin with our walls built up where we say we don't want God in, but whenever God starts to break in, we say, you know what, whatever my past was, whatever I've been up to this point, I'm not going to allow that to define me anymore. I know that you've come in to tear down these walls, and I'm telling you that I'm okay with you coming in and tearing down my walls, Lord. Because when God shows up, He's not looking for somebody that's perfect. He's looking for somebody that understands that where sin did abound, grace much, much more abounds, and He can take anybody from any background with any past and say, I can put you on a new track, I can forgive your sins. I can heal you. I can tear down your walls and build a new kingdom inside of your heart. Even if you used to be a prostitute. 
And this is why she became a hero of faith. And she said to them, give me a sure sign. Now, I love the Hebrew language and when they put little signs in there. But this word uh, for sure sign, if you put that next one up, it's just a three-letter word in the Hebrew language for sure sign. Uh, a true token is, is, is it in some other translations. But you got three letters because Hebrew reads right to left, right? And it's Aleph, Vav, Tav. Aleph is an ox or a sacrifice. Vav is a nail and Tav is a cross. So literally when she asked for a sure sign, she's saying, I want you to show me a sacrifice nailed to a cross. She said, she's, God is foreshadowing the fact that the sure sign that you will be delivered that the walls will come down, that you will be saved from death, that your family shall be secure, is that there will be a sacrifice that is nailed to a cross. Amen. And that is, that is your family that is as broken and messed up as this family right here. And see, when they come in, it's almost like the two comings of Jesus because when they first come into the land, what they actually see is they come in secretly, privately, and hidden. And when Jesus showed up, he didn't show up with a crown, and he didn't show up taking over the politics of Israel. He showed up hidden in a manger, hiding from Herod for fear of death. And that's how he came in, secretly, subtly, hidden. And that's how they came in the first time. But the second time they came in, they came in to conquer. And the second time that Jesus comes back, he will come back to conquer. And you and I will not have to lift a finger because from his mouth will proceed a sword. And he will bring an end to all evil, to all sin. He will vanquish every enemy and he will establish that eternal kingdom that was prophesied about. So we go through Rahab and we've, we've got Tamar, we've got Rahab and then we move on. And after Rahab, who ends up having a boy, y'all know this boy's name, Boaz? Rahab has a boy named Boaz with Salmon. Amen. And Ruth shows up on the scene but Ruth, if you remember her story, is a Moabite. She's cursed by God. She's out of the family line. Because Moabites, according to Deuteronomy, were not allowed to come into the congregation of the Lord because Moab came from Lot when Lot had an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. Now this gets even more sketchy, doesn't it? So God says, you know what, Moab, you ain't allowed to come into the congregation of the Lord. They're cursed by God. They're cut off. But then Ruth, who is a Moabitess, shows up on the scene, commits herself to Naomi. Naomi goes back to Israel. There's a good-looking dude named Boaz whose mother was Rahab, who's out there just working in the field, leaving some, leaving some grain behind. And, and, and Ruth comes along, this Moabitess cut off from the family of God. The only way that she can get weaved into the family of God is if a kinsman redeemer buys her back because she had been married to Naomi's sons who were named Malon and Chilion. And I cannot make this up. Their names literally meant sickness and disease and destruction and death. And guess what? Both of them died. <laughs> I mean, if your name is sickness and disease and destruction and death, you're probably going to go early. You know what I'm saying? Those are terrible names. But it's a picture of us. We were born under the curse, married to sickness and death. Married to it, but the kinsman redeemer, his name is Jesus Christ, came and bought us back from the curse of the law and weaved us into the family of God. And that is what Boaz did for Ruth. He weaved that, which, that one which was cut off from the family of God, weaved her back into the family of God, and she became the mother in the lineage of Jesus Christ. 
So you see this over and over and over again. And then finally, the last one of the, of, of the women besides Mary, you come to Bathsheba. And, and, and you, you probably know this story, but the man who was after God's own heart, he got a little bit, his eyes got to wandering a little bit. And he looked, and here's what a guy named Herbert McCabe said. I just got, I figured I'd get tired of preaching at this point, so I let somebody else do it. But Herbert McCabe said, the first section of the genealogy concentrates on sex. From David onwards, the accent is more on violence. So you got sex and violence. He says, David fell in love with a girl he chanced to see bathing naked one evening. He arranged for her husband to be murdered, slept with her, and became the father of Solomon, who was the next in the line of succession toward Christ our Savior. The whole story of David, the ruthlessly and highly successful bandit, who in the power of the Holy Spirit got control of a whole confederacy of tribes, is of course full of intrigue and murder. Successful intrigue and murder. So you see these women. I mean, Solomon came from a woman in whom probably, honestly, David looked on her naked. She married to another guy. He brought her in, maybe even forced himself upon her, got her pregnant. That's where the family line of Jesus comes from. And he was, he was so upset about it, he just went out and had her her husband killed. And this is where Jesus' family line's coming from. Once again, Merry Christmas. From verse 8 through 11, if you go on, you see all the kings that rule after Solomon. And if you remember, Solomon didn't do so well. He started worshiping false gods. His kingdom was split down the middle. It went to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel had 19 kings and Judah had 19 kings and one queen. The Bible says that every one of Israel's 19 kings were wicked, all of them. The Bible says that of Judah from that point on, 12 of the kings were wicked and 8 of them were pretty good kings. But they do so much evil for such a long period of time that God shows up and says, I cannot take this anymore. I'm bringing judgment and I'm letting Babylon come and I'm letting you all go into exile. And they go into exile because of the wickedness of these kings during this time. This is Christ's family line. All of these kings that are ruling in wickedness. But then in Matthew 1.12 it says, After the exile to Babylon was Jeconiah who was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And if you remember for 70 years they were in exile because of these wicked kings. And under the leadership of Nehemiah, Ezra and Zerubbabel they started coming back to rebuild the temple and the people of God are coming back during this time and they're struggling though to get things back in order so God sends a prophet Haggai to him to try to encourage Zerubbabel and here's what he says in the book of Haggai verse uh, 21 he says tell Zerubbabel governor of Judah that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms I will overthrow chariots and their drivers Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now he is giving what I said in the beginning. He's giving a prophecy to Zerubbabel, which makes Zerubbabel probably feel like, dude, I'm the man. But if you read the story, he's not actually saying it directly to Zerubbabel. He's saying it to Zerubbabel's line. And scholars begin to learn this over time because they see that Zerubbabel comes and dies. He's got no crown. He's got no kingdom. He doesn't really vanquish any enemies or armies. And he's thinking, man, this didn't really happen. So they start to think, no, the Messiah is going to come through him. The Messiah is going to come through him. And Jesus is going to be of the line of Zerubbabel. And he is going to be the true signet ring of God. He's going to speak on God's very behalf. 
And I love it because one of my favorite prophecies in the Old Testament is in Haggai 2.7, and the Lord says it like this. He says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. Do you know that even here in America, the reason we get so politically charged all the time and we want this dude in office and this dude out of office, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We have a desire in our heart for righteous leadership, don't we? That's what we want in the depths of our heart. But do you know that no man raised up, no matter how good of a president you think he's going to be, he will not do what you're longing for. Because there is a desire of all nations, and the desire of all nations, they may not know what their desire is, but truly it is the coming of Jesus Christ and Him establishing His kingdom and His reign. And He said, I'm going to shake all nations. And when all nations are shaken, there's going to be a stone that is cut without hands that descends from the heavens, and He will establish an eternal rule and an eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells and reigns. And He's given Him that prophecy. Man, He is the desire of all nations. I know y'all got a lot of desires, especially on Christmas. You ask kids, what do you want for Christmas? You know what we need to want for Christmas? This desire of all nations. He's the best gift. He's what everybody needs. He's what everybody is truly longing for. And so you go another 10 names, and I'm, I'm slowly finishing up here, but you go another 10 names, I'm going to skip 10 for your, for your sake. And it's slowly leading to Jesus. And you come to Matthew 1.16, and it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now, if you read in the King James Version, which I like a lot, I just don't read it for your sakes most of the time, but you got a lot of begats. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And -and so-and-so begats so-and-so, and and really it just means they slept together, they had a child. And they had a child, and they they got together, and they had a child. And all of it is an active tense. They had a child, they had a child. And all of a sudden right here, it switches in the Greek language, and it turns to passive. And there's a reason it turns to passive, because Joseph did not sleep with Mary when she had baby Jesus. And I know this is common to most of us, but this is something that really the Christian faith hinges on. Do you know that if you do not believe in the virgin conception and the virgin birth, then you are not a Christian? To be a Christian means that we believe that he was born of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin Mary. And that is essential because here's the thing. For Jesus to be sinless, be fully God, but still be fully what we are, fully human, you had to have the virgin conception and you had to have the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit came upon her. Here's what it says in Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Mary was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And listen, this was a scandal as the rest of the women in the lineage because they were Joseph was allowed to put her to death for getting pregnant before they were married and for all of those all of that time they knew that Jesus according to natural standards was an illegitimate child they looked at him as an illegitimate child but what we know is that he was not an illegitimate child. The Holy Spirit conceived him in the womb of the Virgin Mary and he was born so that he could be sinless and spotless so that when he became our sacrificial lamb, he went in our place and he was a lamb that was without spot and without blemish. That was the reason that it had to happen. He couldn't have our sinful blood in his body. His blood came from his father, his heavenly father. And so in Matthew 1:17, as it's finishing up, I love this here. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. So you got 14, that's two sevens, right? 
And then you got 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. That's two more sets of sevens, four sevens. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That's six total sets of sevens. So when Jesus shows up in the perfect timing, in the fullness of time, what is he? He is the seventh seven. He's the fullness of time. He's the perfection. He showed up just when God needed him to. And I'm telling you, all those people that were waiting on the promise of God, they're like, God, what are you waiting so long for? We want our enemies vanquished. You promised us a Messiah. You said that we'd come up out from under this slavery and under this bondage. Where is the Messiah? And God's saying, you know what? Even when you think things are not going the way that they should, I am totally providential. I see all things and everything is right in the palm of my hand and I know exactly what I'm doing. And can I tell you that in your life, God knows exactly what He's doing? I know things don't always make sense, but He is still God of the universe. He still has a plan for your life. And if you will yield to Him, His promises will be fulfilled in their perfect time. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that God is on the throne, that He's the one working all of these things. But see, what God is doing through this lineage, I believe that He's saying, is He's beginning to announce that no matter how bad off you are, no matter what kind of family line you come from, no matter what ethnicity you are, whether you're male or female or whatever you are, it doesn't matter. God has come to save the world and He's bringing everybody on an equal playing field and saying this salvation is for the entire world. And that should so move in our hearts that we begin to share this with the entire world. That even the people that we think are like Rahab, prostitutes living in a a sinful wall, we still reach out to them because God wants to weave even the worst of us into His very family line. And that's crazy to think about. Because when God looked at me, He didn't look at my past and say, man, you come from a pretty sketchy background. No, He said, you know what? You need to look at my family line. I came from a pretty sketchy background because what I came to do was to heal my family line. And when Jesus shows up, you know what He does? I see Him do it all the time. He heals family lines. There are things in your family that ends with you. Maybe your father was this. Maybe your mother was that. Maybe your grandfather was a no-count this or that. But it ends with you and your children will not come up under that same thing because he heals family lines. There's a new family tree and he seeks to weave us into his family tree to bring healing. And he does this on purpose. And Matthew writes this on purpose because remember who Matthew is. Matthew's a tax collector. He's an extortioner. He's a collaborator with the Roman Empire. For some of you, that would be the equivalent of him being Joe Biden's best friend. I know how y'all are politically. But Jesus still calls him, doesn't he? He still calls him. He still says, "I, I love you, Matthew. I want you to be weaved into my family line. And Matthew's trying to lay this out. He's trying to say, like, I know y all hate me. I know y'all ain't my biggest fan. I know that uh, I kind of voted for the guy that you didn't vote for. But Jesus still came after me. Jesus still loves me. And he's trying to set things right. And what he does is he has this lineage and he looks back at the lineage and he says, Oh my gosh, Jesus came from this. And it's so broken and so messed up. But that's the beautiful thing about Christmas is that the perfect Son of God enters into our brokenness and into our broken families. And he says, I can bring healing. I can bring restoration. I can set things right. I can change things. And when we start to understand the Christmas story on that level, the things that Paul writes make way more sense. 
Like you remember when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when you come to God, you need to understand that this salvation is not based upon how good you are. This salvation, He imputes His righteousness to you. He clothes you in His righteousness because He knows you can't work it out on your own. And He became sin who didn't deserve sin so that I could become righteous who didn't deserve righteousness. And He transforms my heart. He draws me by the Holy Spirit. He brings me to a place of repentance. He gives me a new heart and a new spirit. And He makes me a born again, new creation. And I repent in faith. And when I do, He says, Son, you're now clothed in my righteousness. And I'm changing your family. I'm changing your family line. I'm weaving you into my bloodline. And this is what he's doing to all of us. And I love when Galatians 3.28, because Paul was a man who would have prayed that prayer. He'd have said, oh, blessed are you, O God, King of the universe. And thank you that you've not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. He would have prayed that as a man growing up. But in Galatians 3.28, he reverses it. He says, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is not that, hey, there's not male and female. He's saying that when you come to Christ, it doesn't matter if you are male or female. It doesn't matter if you are slave or free. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile. It breaks racial barriers. It breaks gender barriers. Whether you're a man, a woman, black or white, whatever ethnicity you come from, Jesus invites you into the family line. And when we all are in heaven together, we're going to see many from a variety of places and we're going to worship the same king and be one in the family of God. I told, I told Andrea last night, I said, what do you think about this statement? I've got more in common with a Chinese man in an underground church who is following Jesus than I do with an unbelieving person in America. Because they're my family. Somebody amen me. I got more allegiance to the kingdom of God, even though I love my nation. And I'd fight for it if I had to. But I got more allegiance to the kingdom of God. Amen. God's doing something throughout the world right now. God's not doing something in our families. God's doing something in our community. And we cannot forget that. Because He does this. He calls people like Rahab. He calls people like Matthew. And He calls people like us. Because we are Matthew and we are Rahab. We have collaborated with the enemy. We have worshipped money and sex and fame and power. And we've went a totally opposite direction. But guess what? Jesus came after me and He came after you. And He brought us into His family line and he's saying I want you to share this same good news the same way that Matthew did with the whole world and I'm telling you I know maybe there's some people in here you don't know Jesus and, and we need to deal with that we need to work through that we need to figure out where your next step is with the Lord but for the rest of you, you know, the more, majority of you, you come in here this morning and you are followers of Jesus. But here's what I've sensed so strongly in my spirit. And I shared it in the prayer meeting yesterday morning. And I told folks, I feel like right now, for whatever reason, people's hearts are going to be more open to Jesus than they've ever been before over this next season. The question is, is whether or not Christians are going to be sensitive enough to be able to share this good news that I just shared with you with people who don't know Jesus. Because you got people you've prayed for. you got people in your family that you think will never get saved because they're about like Rahab. 
They're over in a wall somewhere doing God knows what. And you think they'll never be saved. And I'm telling you, Jesus wants them in his family line right now in this season. So I want you to be aware of that. Be sensitive to that. Because there's people you say, well, buddy, I've invited him to church 15 times. I'm telling you right now, invite him again. You don't know what God's up to. You don't know what God's doing in your family. You don't know what God is doing in your friends. And take a bold step and just say, you know what? I, I, I want to share Jesus with you. I want to invite you to church over the next few weeks. And just see what happens. Allow God to be God. Don't give up. God wants to do this work and bring people in that you could not imagine He wanted to bring in. And that's what Jesus' lineage demonstrates. That's what the Christmas gospel shows that Jesus was born and entered into a place, man, that we would have never imagined, a darkness that we would have never imagined. And he wants to weave us in, and the Bible says that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what we want to see. That's what we want to see. So in the busyness of the next few weeks, and it's going to get busy, and it? it's going to be crazy next few weeks. I get that. Christmas is a wild time. But still yet, over the next few weeks... What's not important, I'm just going to be honest with you, is buying gifts for people who really don't need anything else. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I tell Andre, I'm like, listen, please, there's a couple things I'll get. We'll get that at some point. But, I mean, what's not important is me getting more stuff this season or giving more stuff to people who don't need anything. I love the fact that as a church we're giving gifts to kids and to kids' parents that they, they don't, they're not going to have anything otherwise. And we need, but there's people who actually need things. And you might want to consider saving some of that money to give to people who actually are in need. You don't need nothing, most of y'all. Some of you do. And guess what? Jesus wants to provide that. But what you need more than anything is to know Christ and put Him at the center of your life during this busy season. I know it's busy, but put Jesus first. Think on Him. Put him in this. And I'm telling you, I, I just believe that even over the next few weeks when we meet here together on Sunday morning, on the Sunday evening, I think the Holy Spirit is just going to flood our hearts and our lives. I think it's going to bleed over into our homes and into our families, and we're going to see God do some miracles. Amen. Let's just bow our heads where we're at. So if you're here right now this morning, and you say, I've not given my life to Jesus, but that's me. I, I, I recognize that I'm like Rahab. I'm like Matthew. But I sense in the spirit that God is coming after me the same way he did Matthew and saying follow me and I sense that in my spirit and so right now I, I, I'm, I want to follow Jesus if that's you and God's doing that in your heart right now would you raise your hand just so I can know and I can pray with you and pray for you anybody here anybody here anybody at all praise the Lord and for the rest of us I want us to be reminded of this reality of where God came to get us and what He's doing in our families because we got a lot of families represented here. And Lord, right now we are praying, Father, for Your blessing to overflow in each family. God, You heal our families. You take our past, God, and You forgive it and You wipe away the shame. And Lord, You set us on a new path and You give us what Rahab said was a, was a sure sign that you went to the cross, you died in our place, you took our sins so that we could be forgiven, that we could be made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that salvation and we worship you this morning. But God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in such a way that over these next few weeks, we would go out and we would proclaim the gospel to the people that seem to be the furthest away from you. God, that we invite them to church, but that we share Jesus 
with them. And Lord God, that they come to the knowledge of truth, that you would grant them repentance, Father, so that they could be saved, that they could be healed, and that it would change their family line, God. Lord, we worship you this morning. We thank you for what you're doing. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand.